You're getting in on episode 167 here. Have you tried diets that left you feeling hungry? You may have tried vegan, paleo, keto, low carb, insert diet that has a cult following. (laughs) And you likely saw some short-term results from this and felt good for a while. But soon after that, you felt either hungry or that you couldn't sustain that particular way of eating for much longer. If you resonate with that dietary experience over the last few years or the last few decades, then today's episode is a great place to start because we talk about how your low nutrient content drives overeating of all the crappy foods, as well as how some of the big fad diets I mentioned before are letting you down. We discuss protein insufficiency and how that leads to overeating and energy toxicity. And towards the end, we do a bit of a philosophical thinking on the regenerative farming movement. All right, let's do it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Good to have you back here on the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast show. In 2022, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. As you know, if you're a frequent How to Not Get Sick and Diet podcast listener, otherwise known as a healthy friend of mine, you'll know I'm all about intermittent fasting and love a bit of the old water fasting as well. So, on today's episode, I'm pretty excited to have this person here. We have the other Australian intermittent fasting guy. And someone whose content I've secretly been scoping out for a few years now before we met. And so, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Marty Kendall. And just quickly, a shout out to Mike Collins at the Quit Sugar Summit for linking us up. We needed someone from the US to connect us both here on the Aussie mainland. (laughs) Anyway, Marty Kendall. Marty is an engineer who seeks to optimize nutrition using a data-driven approach. So, for all our numbers nerds out there, this is your man. Marty's interest in nutrition began 18 years ago in an effort to help his wife, Monica, gain better control of her type 1 diabetes. Since going on that deeply personal journey to support Monica, his love for the nutrition numbers developed into a body of work and a systematized approach to nutrition tailored for a wide range of goals. Marty has been sharing his learnings at OptimizingNutrition.com and has developed the program's Nutrient Optimizer and Data-Driven Fasting to guide people on their journey of nutritional optimization, which is obviously what we're all about. So, you're hanging out with the right crowd here, Marty. So, welcome to the show, mate. How are you doing? Good, buddy. Great to chat. Always good to chat. You've just made the leap into the entrepreneurial world. So, welcome, my friend. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Great to join you. (laughs) I can't believe you weren't here already. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to understand more about your wife's experience and how that got you into the nutrition numbers. Like most engineers or most husbands would just leave it up to the doctor and rely on the drugs that the doctor prescribed or suggested. So, for you, what was different? Why the decision to get your hands dirty in this nutrition world? Yeah, I sort of fell into nutrition. Um, it's a whole part of fun and a, a very deep rabbit hole, but it all sort of started when... I met Moni, who's got type 1 diabetes, and I think that she knew much about what it was and the, the understanding was pretty shallow back then and still is to a large degree and um, decided to have children after we got married suddenly and, uh, hey, when are we having children? Okay, okay, well, um, <laughs> yeah, as sometimes happens. And, um, and she 
understood that to have healthy children and avoid all the complications of diabetes and a diabetic pregnancy had to get a better handle on her blood sugars and that was an extreme motivator for her and uh, I sort of fell into that as well and we found a, a doctor that helped us understand a lot and move things forward and we learned a hell of a lot through that period. And then maybe six years ago, uh, just started into paleo and low carb and keto and found a community of um, type one grit who followed Dr. Bernstein and he's everything he says is amazing. He's a simulian engineer who's now 85 with type one diabetes since he was 14. And he just started testing his blood sugars and understanding how insulin and carbs and protein affected his blood sugars and started to dial things in and everything he wrote decades ago was amazing and um we just sort of started to follow that and learn a lot and i just said how can we quantify this you know how do we better make better food choices for money to be able to have more stable blood sugars and need less insulin and dial all those things in so that was just a, a complete rabbit hole and i got my hand on all the data i could and started crunching the numbers for her and then myself and a family and then realized that a high fat keto diet may not be perfect for everybody's goals and there's not just one magic solution that suits everybody's everybody's got different goals and contexts and preferences so sort of use the data to reverse engineer nutrition to say this is your goal let's find that the dietary approach the selection of foods that's going to work for you whether you're trying to lose weight manage diabetes or you're a growing kid trying to bulk up they're all completely different nutritional approaches yeah well, those um different contexts that people have what drives those because we're so conditioned for this you know diet belief system world mm. that's like now it's paleo now it's keto yeah. now it's carnivore <laughs> so like and and obviously that you know there's a lot of women probably listening to this that have like yeah I've tried it all and none of it works yeah. so yeah. what are those different contexts that people need to take into consideration yeah um it's interesting we we used to worship like deities and and the, the sun and the moon and the seasons and give this mythical power to these deities but now we've transitioned you know we've, we've got a bit of science but when it comes to nutrition we're now worshiping diets as if one <laughs> dietary approach whether it's plant-based vegan carnivore paleo keto whatever is the one perfect diet for everybody so yeah but the truth is everybody's got different contexts, different goals. If you're a, my teenage kids, my son is just a, a growing fiend and he's smashing <laughs> in the gym and doing rugby and he tracked his calories and like average is about 4,000 a day and he struggles. He goes, oh, I want to get lean. And so he's trying to get to 3,000 calories a day and he, he can't do it because he's just burning so much. Meanwhile, the daughter who stopped growing is completely different and I'm different and the wife's different. And so everybody's got different contexts and goals and uh everybody needs nutrients but the amount of energy from fat and carbs is sort of that lever of you know if you need to dial back your carbohydrate to stabilize your blood sugar that's great but in the end it's just a balance of nutrients particularly protein versus energy from fat and carbs and finding the right balance for you for your goals and then tailoring it to do I like plants? Do I not like plants? Do I like eating animals? Am I allergic to shellfish or, uh, you know, lectins or what we were talking about before or <laughs> oxalates or low FODMAP or whatever? You can overlay those things on top of that, but it's really fundamentally nutrients versus energy. 
I love how the word deity has the spelling for diet in it. <laughs> it's sort of ironic, isn't it? Because <laughs> we don't follow religions as much these days, especially as Aussies, but uh, everybody passionately wants to identify with a community and, like, the online diet community is really a lot of people's new religion. If you challenge that, they're very threatened. But if you say something to, like, this dopamine hit to go, yeah, that, that's true, That's my, that reinforces my belief. Mm. Oh, there's so much... Yeah, social media is the worst for reinforcing reinforcing correct or incorrect belief systems. <laughs> yeah, and every five years you get a new diet dogma from low carb to keto to paleo to plant based, and you know, it, none of them just say, you know, am I getting enough nutrients from what the food I'm eating? And it's just like mind blown. Why not? Let's <laughs> let's look at like, fundamentally nutrition is about nutrients. So let's look at that. Do you find that? Um, like getting enough nutrients, macro, micros, do you feel like people are overwhelmed by the data and so that's maybe why they don't go down that well, that rabbit hole? or They just don't understand it. But, yeah, that, that's been a challenge of ours to say, okay, we've analysed all the data and amino acids and then calcium, potassium, sodium and then all the other micronutrients all play a role and to quantify that is a challenge. Some people love it. Some people want to quantify their macros and then dial in and quantify their micros, but the majority of people don't want to. So that's sort of been our quest for the last couple of years to simplify it to the, you know, here's a suite of recipes that are going to work for you if your goal is fat loss or blood sugar control and meal plans. So, yeah, that, that, that's been the ongoing challenge to make it more palatable to the masses to say, here's, just start here, eat this and mm-hmm. forget all the information that you could understand. We've got the data, we've got the words, but if you just want to eat this to get results, then just do that. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it can be overwhelming, but that's, um, as a systems engineer, that's what floats my boat and I love it. So <laughs> You make it simple, simple for the rest of us. That's the goal. <laughs> um, as you were talking there, I was kind of thinking about um, like public health. So, in my nutrition degree, that was one of the really boring but necessary sub- subjects <laughs> that I did. But it kind of reminds us privileged people, so to speak. Mm. Not that I'd necessarily classify as privileged, but that um, access to nutrition and food is actually mm. really difficult in a lot of places. And so, uh, I'm curious for the, you know, maybe whether it's the average or the below average person in a Western country or in any country, mm. how does one begin <clears throat> to make better choices? Like, or, or, or is this the kind of stuff, and, and it's potentially the same for the things that I do, yeah. that are restricted to the people that, you know, have enough money to buy health? Yeah, I- I think you can still make better food choices and it doesn't have to be highly expensive and some of the the cheapest meats, organ meats, whatever, the other most nutritious and the offcuts, mm-hmm. the the lower fat type of meats are potentially more satiating. But the reality is that a whole system is set up, a whole food system is set up with, you know, uh, I'm, I'm really triggered by fossil fuel fertilizers that just basically suck energy out of the ground from methane, turn it into fertilizer, dump it into the ground and grow um, you know, refined carbs, refined fats really quickly and dump it into our food system and all those foods are subsidized. So everything in the yeah. center aisles of your shopping center and your fast food store is this magical combination of, of refined fat, refined carbs that, 
gives you a dopamine overdrive that makes you keep eating them again and again and again and again and keep coming back to it. So the reality is, I mean, food's a lot cheaper as a proportion of our income compared to 50 years ago and it's just become cheaper and cheaper as it's subsidised and we just dump all this cheap energy that's going to run out eventually into our food system and yeah, you do have to invest in your health, invest in good food that actually nourishes your body and that should be seen as an investment. So we just say buy the best quality food you can reasonably afford and that you enjoy and you'll find you enjoy that. And not only do you enjoy it and it satisfies your body and gives nourishes your body with the nutrients you need, you'll be eating less of it because it's more satiating. So potentially yeah. it's a win-win. But in the end, food has to be an investment. What are you going to – is it, you know, the latest fashion and Versace handbag or is it the food that's going to nourish you and make you look brighter and happier and healthier and vibrant and think better and feel better and have better self-esteem, all the good things and avoid diabetes and all the metabolic health diseases that we're being crushed by? Sadly, I think in this social media world, which has trained our dopamine pathways to get a hit every three seconds, most people are going for the handbag every time. <laughs> I saw it on Instagram. I need that handbag right now. <laughs> but yeah, no, and the dopamine overdrive is such a, it's an endemic. I've been diving into that even more since we talked last time. And yeah, it's fascinating how how much our delayed gratification is. You know, we can't do it. If you, we were the kid waiting for the marshmallow, we'd take it now every time, most of us, and we just, yeah. But we get into a position where we're just always in that dopamine and, you know, it drives, I need more food to get that dopamine now. We can't wait to eat. We can't fast for five hours to, you know, <laughs> and, but the food tastes better after you wait a little while and you're actually hungry and ready to eat again. Have you ever done some long water fasts? Um, yeah, I, the seven days I did for funsies. So um, that was an interesting experiment to track my glucose and ketones. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting experiment. What did you learn? Um, oh, I felt euphoric when the ketones were, were really high. Mm -hmm. um, but I used to do two and three day fasts on a regular sort of basis. But I ended up, I don't think it helped my body composition or overall health in the long term because I didn't understand that what you eat after you don't eat is potentially as important or more important. For sure. So if you what I've learned more recently is if you're fasting so long that the you know, my kryptonite is the the peanut butter and yogurt combined together somehow that just blows my brain and it once the, <laughs> the my lizard brain goes, you know, takes over, that's what I go for and just can't stop eating it. So I know if I get to that point where I've pushed it too hard and I'm making worse food choices, you know, I've fasted for too long. So you just, my thing lately with the whole data-driven fasting world is, you know, water fasts are fantastic um, for the, the autophagy and health and the long-term things, but most people are doing fasting, whatever that means really. What does fasting mean? It just means going voluntarily without food for a period. Um most people need that shorter-term intermittent you know, two or three meals a day without snacking and, and just being able to time their food choices so so they go long enough to get a, a slight calorie deficit but not to the point that they're rebound binging after every time they eat and making 
you know, you're going to choose low protein, low nutrient density foods when you're really, really hungry, just to jam as much energy in as you can. Yeah, well, which kind of brings us around to the satiation conversation. And you were talking before mm. as well about, you know, you end up uh, buying these foods that have been produced by the food industry uh, that are like bliss point foods often. Um, they're, you know, <laughs> engineered foods. Yeah, engineered, hyper palatable uh, foods that are in the middle of the supermarket. Uh, and then these refined carbohydrates, which mean that there's no real mechanism to say, oh, mm. that's enough. Um, yeah. And I know we we're talking before about nutrient density. So do you think people, mm. that energy toxicity or that overeating comes mm. from not being satiated or not or being um having a lack of nutrition in the system or is it both uh yes all all of the above (laughs) um we we why do we eat i mean we eat to get nutrition and the nourishment our body needs and uh you know you need adequate protein you need minerals particularly potassium calcium sodium Mm -hmm. and all the vitamins and omega-3 and whether you can taste that in your food you still sort of get a dopamine reinforcement for foods that contain more potassium or more sodium or vitamins it seems as well from our recent analysis which is completely fascinating so if you don't get that from the food you're currently eating you just keep eating more so Mm. Robin Heimer and Simpson at University of Sydney have demonstrated for the last 15 years in animals and humans that we eat until we get enough protein, protein leverage. And so choosing foods with a slightly higher protein percentage help us to be satisfied with fewer calories and eat less overall. But it seems the same thing applies from our data analysis to, you know, to some degree to a lot of the, the, the minerals and even the vitamins. How do you measure satiation? Like when you say you're looking at your own data, like how do you know how to interpret when people – is it just when they stopped eating? Yeah, so um, we've got 125,000 days of data from 32,000 people using mm-hmm. Nutrient Optimizer, Optimizer over the last four years. So dump that into a spreadsheet and you can see the total calories per day and look at the correlation between – um, you know, protein percentage and potassium per calorie and sodium per calorie and calcium per calorie, et cetera, et cetera, and then ran a multivariate analysis through that for funsies and just <laughs> it was really popped up really powerfully that it's not just protein, it's the potassium and calcium and sodium that all have really significant impacts on how much we eat. So if our food doesn't contain enough potassium, it just seems we keep on eating more of that because... Mm. Whether you can taste potassium or not, it, we seem to have a craving for it and the body goes, yeah, that was good. Um, I need more of that food. But if you don't get enough of it, you keep eating more food until you get until you solve that puzzle of nutrition of all the different nutrients coming together. So, so far, does it look like it's more the electrolyte mineral balance? Um, yep. as, but you said there, there was some vitamins too? Yeah, um, I'm completely fascinated by this. I spent three weeks just deep in the rabbit hole of crunching all this data. Um, Yeah, amino acids, protein, definitely number one. Um, Potassium, calcium, sodium. Magnesium didn't seem to rank as well, but it's definitely important. But then the the vitamins also seem to, to play a part in levels that we get from food. But it seems that, you know, we've because we had niacin deficiency, pellagra and 
beriberi, which is B1 deficiency. We've dumped all these synthetic vitamins into our food. And I read um, The End of Craving by Mark Schatzko, and I had him on my podcast a week ago, and uh, he identified that back in the 60s they've, they realised that pigs kept in captivity got sick if they were just fed the, the the grains and they needed to add in alfalfa or let them out on the fields. Mm-hmm. So um, what they then found is if they fortified their feed, they, they sort of lost interest in the alfalfa and didn't need to go out on the on the fields anymore and they, they kept on growing and they grew a lot more and just chowed down on the fortified pig food mm-hmm. and uh, that was sort of the perfect formula to make these pigs grow fast with less food input so ever since then animal food has been fortified with vitamins to make them grow more quickly because it, it helps you use that energy vitamins are, are critical to enable us to actually create energy in our mitochondria but also to build fat and build body size and you know shortly after all of a sudden we're dumping more and more vitamins into our food system so it's like hey wait up did the food scientists work out that hey people can only eat so much this shitty cereal (laughs) they get bored of it and they go in search of you know meat and seafood and veggies but hey if we put vitamin b1 b2 b3 and folate and into it they keep on chowing down on that same fortified breakfast cereal that otherwise would contain we get bored of it because it doesn't contain the nutrients we need so it's sort of an ingenious way to make us keep on eating these foods and (laughs) more of these foods that are otherwise really nutrient poor so it's sort of seems to be a nutrient leverage effect for the vitamins that are able to be fortified, which is completely fascinating. So, you know, eh, you know avoid anything in the ingredient label, I think, that has refined grains, refined oils, and needs to be fortified because if it needs to be fortified, it's a trash food to start with and it's probably going to make you eat more of it and lose interest in the foods that you really need. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. 
Oh, absolutely. The big food industry is <coughs> sneaking things Very in. Very smart. Yeah. Oh, genius and evil. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredibly good marketing and it's very profitable. Yeah. Well, and it plays into that whole reptilian brain stuff that mm. most people aren't consciously aware of. And I'd say most people aren't aware of until it's happening. And it's like, oh, shit, I'm here again. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I just can't stop eating. Why is it? It's like, well, what are you eating? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that move to whole real foods, you know, my brain immediately goes to like paleo. But in the in the diet world, like as we said before, people love to attach themselves to these labels and identify with these groups of people mm. and belief systems. You've, I know you've got you've got um, recipe books on basically every one of those. So, so <laughs> every diet religion we've got coming. <laughs> yeah, totally. So like, you're like doing a, it's like doing a religion degree going to going mm. over to optimizing nutrition, but do you have <laughs> one that, one that you lean towards or is it just totally dependent on the individual? Um, well, the most nutritious foods are generally just, you know, meat, seafood, veggies, which is, you could call it paleo. Mm-hmm. Um, I've still got a, a, a thing for paleo. I like raw wolf a lot, and um, I think you got a lot of it right. But then once started, people started making paleo comfort foods and saying, is this date coconut slice paleo? I can just <laughs> eat as much as I want of it. Paleo started to crash and keto took over. So, And then you've got you know, my, my keto fat bombs and I'm replacing all this trash comfort food with <laughs> – stevia and whatever thrown into coconut oil and uh you got the same problem again and again so every every new diet trend ends up being bastardized by yeah hyper palatability and people go oh, i can make this taste really amazing so i love eating it and replaces all the other trash foods that i was eating before but it's still keto paleo vegan low carb carnivore whatever um you know you can you can work within that label to, to bastardize any food to make it hyper palatable. It makes me think of protein cookies, like, and just how misleading that title is. <laughs> like, come on. Just because you found some protein in it. like <laughs> It's got 14 grams of protein. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely, you know, uh, I mean, whey, pr- whey protein powder can be useful, but it's... Oh, for sure. It's it's pre-digested. It's it mm-hmm. doesn't really hit the satiety the way that protein in real food does. So it, a lot of people really struggle just to get enough protein from whole food. It's it's not what we default to. It's if we've got the peanut butter and the donuts and the pizza, we go for that first every time. Yeah. Well, speaking of, why do people struggle to get that uh, amount of protein in? It's just satiating, and uh, you get a bigger dopamine hit from fat and carbs and if you combine the fat and carbs together you get a bigger dopamine hit and you just enjoy that food to a, to a, an extent more you you enjoy the the donuts and cookies and and all those other foods more 
But in reality, from a seasonal point of view, if you looked at seasons before the advent of agriculture and refrigeration and being able to store all the food, mm-hmm. you'd have like a, a low-carb keto in winter to come into spring. You'd have a protein spring modified fast. In summer, you'd get more carbs. In autumn, you get this massive special time where you get the acorns and the nuts and maybe milk is a special sort of food that helps babies grow that's got the fat and carbs together. And those foods prepare for winter again, but we're just stuck in this perpetual autumn these days with the fat and carbs together. We've just worked out how to design foods from summer and winter, bring them together with low protein, which is cheap and hyper palatable, and we just keep on eating. We're stuck in autumn preparing for a winter that never, ever comes. (laughs) That's a good way to think about it. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Stuck in a perpetual autumn. So I guess... One thing that you often often hear you talk about, um, and we talked a little bit last time. So for anyone listening, we tried to do this once, and te- te- <laughs> technology screwed us over. Basically, Danny <laughs> deleted my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it inevitably brings up insulin, which is obviously comes back to where you were talking about Monica in the beginning, and mm. and so we hear so much about this, you know, carb insulin hypothesis, and there's a lot of yep. carb phobia out there now, yep. and people are like, oh, carbs are bad, and even I even get messages on in my DM on in instagram they're like oh, i don't i don't do carbs anymore like um yep. so they're evil they're yeah, all evil totally Every carb, <laughs> especially the spinach with the oxalates and carbs <laughs> oh, <laughs> broccoli that broccoli <laughs> ruthless broccoli ruthless broccoli you can't trust a head of broccoli so talk to us about um insulin and carbs like what oh, what, wow. what do you think some of the misconceptions out there are as a result of the keto world yeah i wrote a book on it um <laughs> called Big Fat Keto Lies just to trigger people. Uh, <laughs> yes, so many, and I fell for them all. Um, I was I was chief of the uh, the, the insulin-fearing brigade because I thought insulin was evil and to be avoided at all costs and initially developed the um, – I heard Jason Fung talk about the food insulin index and found the original data from um, – 1998 University of Sydney Food Insulin Index data then found a bunch more stuff and basically worked out that the short-term insulin response to food is basically stimulated by protein and and carbs, particularly non-fibre carbohydrate and about half as much protein. So if you want to have a a lowered short-term over the first two or three hours, which is what they're measured with the Food Insulin Index, uh, if you want to lower your short-term insulin response, you want to avoid carbs particularly and even protein. But then all of a sudden I realized that avoiding protein is the way to have low satiety and overeat. So it's like, oh, mind blown. What does this mean? How do we how do we manage it? But then I sort of realized by looking at Monica's insulin data that like 80% of her daily insulin dose is all about holding her stored energy in storage. It's basal insulin. If she doesn't eat, she still needs about 20 units of insulin per day versus if she does eat, it might be 25 to 30 mm-hmm. units of insulin per day. So only five units of insulin is related to the food she eats and anybody in a low-carb diet is going to be, you know, the predominant insulin your pancreas produces is going to be just to hold your stored energy in storage if you don't have a pancreas that produces insulin all of your stored energy leaches out into bloodstream you see elevated glucose ketones free fatty acids Mm -hmm. you're in diabetic keto keto acidosis and you're in a hospital so basically i 
finally understood that insulin is about not jamming more energy into your system like you you ate a carbohydrate insulin spiked and it runs around and pushes that insulin that the insulin pushes that energy into your fat stores it's really just about holding it back in storage so that the best way to manage your overall insulin toxicity is to manage the energy toxicity with a high satiety nutrient dense diet with less energy from fat and carbs so you can eat less over the longer term so yeah i'm I'm a little bit triggered by all the talk about insulin toxicity and um you know fearing insulin when you know what do you do with that really the fundamental problem is energy toxicity due to hyperpalatable processed foods and the solution is satiety through getting the nutrients you need with less energy what about the idea that um, protein is insulogenic yeah it, it, it is um but only over the short term um every if you think of it from a perspective of when you eat carbohydrate, your body goes, okay, I've got this carbohydrate in my system. There's not much room to store it. I need to shut off the release of energy, particularly glucose, from my liver. I'm going to raise insulin until I burn off that glucose. Similarly for protein, when you eat protein, it's got about half the response as as carbohydrate but then fat sort of has a a longer term response but the body says hey welcome aboard i've got plenty of room to store you i don't really need to raise insulin much because i don't want to halt the burning of the food i'm just happy to have you on board you you know jump on the fat stores we might need you later Mm -hmm. um and fat's really easy to store so you know because glucose is hard to store there's limited room for it protein there's also limited room it's hard to store it's hard to use if you get more than you need you can't really turn it to atp easily it's a lot of work Mm. high level of dietary induced thermogenesis so really but you know if you look at protein as the most satiating macronutrient you really want your protein percentage to be as high as you can get it reasonably sustainably um, so you eat less overall and your basal insulin drops down. So really what you need to target is rather than worrying about, you know, I ate an egg and my protein spiked and therefore I'm going to get fat. It's like what foods are you eating that are going to help you to lower your body fat stores so your pancreas needs to pump out less insulin and that's what you really need to target, not the little blips after you eat. I really think... It's good to have healthy, stable blood sugars. Like if your blood sugars mm-hmm. jump by more than 1.6 millimole or 30 milligrams per deciliter, you might, then your glucose is going to crash. And once your glucose comes down again, you're going to get hungry and go, oh, I need to eat now because my glucose is lower than I'm happy with. So you want to get off the glucose roller coaster. Mm-hmm. But once it's stable, you just go, okay, I'm just eating for satiety. I'm eating for nutrient density. And I don't really care about little blips in my insulin and carbohydrate Mm because worrying about the trying to measure your insulin based on the food you eat is really trying to measure the volume of the ocean by the waves the height of the waves on a on a on a calm day it's like it's a stupid thing to try and it's it's the wrong measurement you're trying to manage and measure so you just need to go okay what's triggering the most insulin in my body it's my body fat stores how big am i and eating for satiety is going to help you manage that most effectively. 
Is that um, talking about that insulogenic effect? Is that why the currently the carnival is going through its like hardcore religion phase of re- of <laughs> recruitment at the minute? Um, and is that why that works? Because is is it because it's low insulin response but high satiety because of the yeah. protein density? Yeah, basically, carnival works great because you've got tons of bioavailable protein, and people go, "Oh, carnival is magic," and it is magic just because it supplies a whole lot of protein. But all the the long termers in the carnival movement are now going, "We love fat; protein's bad." It's just the same thing as protein cookies and you know uh, all the hyperpalatable, um, you know, paleo comfort foods. It's just okay. I've I've got to a healthy weight and now i need more energy and that's natural if you get to a healthy weight you need to dial fat or carbs back up so you don't continue to lose weight but most of us need to lose a bit of weight so we need to dial back the fat and or carbs back a little bit um, as you're talking about about that there i was just thinking about uh, good old world health organization who obviously has everyone's back um and <laughs> they know everything and and like our you know our bodies of nutrition and health and and then the correlation with the messaging that they're starting to put out about uh plant-based and eating less meat and mm. this kind of thing this kind of narrative that's being pumped out and then that narrative is being supported by uh the likes of mcdonald's and all mm. of these fast food restaurants that are adding plant-based options mm. and burgers to their menu which mm. to the to the average person that's not interested in nutrition they take that as a this this is healthy like it's it's mm. got plants plants are healthy i was raised mm. on those coles ads which were like eat five vegetables and three bits of fruit or whatever they were back in the day but um what what do you think because you're saying here that you know more protein is better which these plant-based options seem to be taking us away from and that carnivore mm. can can be magic for some people can be really mm. effective so what do you think the disconnect or the reason is for your discovery of what of the, this increased protein in the diet being necessary for people's health and, and weight loss and this type of thing and then this public health narrative that seems to be coming out that's like plant-based we've got to eat less meat mm. If you look at like if you look at the Eat Lancet report, which is um, the, the new version of really just USDA guidelines, the people behind it are the fertilizer companies, the food companies, the pharmaceutical companies, scarily, and they're all mm-hmm. pre- promoting this plant-based sustainability agenda because sustainability is a really big deal. But you know, my my really major struggle at the moment is we've only got limited resources of oil and gas to keep making our food. And if we keep on dumping fossil fuel fertilizers into our food that's, you know, made faster with all the, the electricity and diesel and transport that goes into it, we're just going to keep chewing through more and more energy to produce more and more energy in our food that has facilitated a bigger and bigger population both in size and number over the last 50 years so we've got this trajectory that's really ominous and scary of you know we're going to hit 10 billion people that has has only been made possible by extraction of non-renewable resources and dumping that into our food system and that's you know it's the same people that are profiting off that plant-based message for mm-hmm. sustainability yeah. that are now promoting, you know, that, that 
that were around 50 years ago that have made a ton of money out of this. So it's just greenwashing of the same message. But eventually we're going to come to a point where we can't keep dumping non-renewable energy into our food system. Petrol prices are going up, diesel prices are going up, eventually oil runs out. What happens at that point? We're going to need to find a way to bring plant-based and animal-based agriculture back together because you know it's the cows and the the sheep that used to poo on the ground and fertilize it naturally and make this amazing nutrient dense food and i think that's that's the future of sustainability and one way or the other we're going to have to get there in the foreseeable future well and and that kind of uh, you know 10 billion people on the earth and and all of these people eating these diets it, it brings up kind of a philosophical question in my mind which is what is the value of uh, a human or a species that mm. has to eat highly manufactured food that has to take drugs for most of its life like mm. are you actually worthy of existence as a spe- animal or as a species on the earth when you need all of this chemical ma- artificial mm. maintenance for most of your existence yeah there's some very deep philosophical questions and you know uh, but eventually we're going to have to face them one way or the other once mm. we can't keep extracting methane and and oil to continue to fuel the trajectory that's driving diabetes epidemic surely elon musk will save us yeah, well, maybe he can. You know, I love Wally. Have you seen the movie Wally, where everybody just circles the Earth till the world regenerates? Oh and, no, I haven't. You know, oh, it's really good. It's maybe ten years old, but it's the story of a cartoon um, romantic comedy with Wally and Eva, who's this little robot who cleans up the Earth. But anyway, um, but they put the humans on a spaceship, and they've got robots serving them and serving them food, and they're all just morbidly. You know, BMI of a hundred um, <laughs> and can't move, and they fall off their chair, and they have to be lifted back in, and it's emergency. But uh, you know, what are the chances of being able to move to Mars and get the minerals that we need, the the, the protein we need on Mars in their environment? You know, our circadian rhythm. It, it, yeah, we've we've got one Earth that we've got to make work, and I just think a real regenerative agriculture approach that regenerates the topsoil and doesn't just keep pillaging non-renewable resources is the way we have to go one way or the other. So if you focus on foods that contain more nutrients that aren't synthetic and fortified, you naturally get, you have to move towards a more naturally produced, um, you know, smaller scale farm that's not this massive monocrop agriculture system with fields that have been depleted from 50 years of the same soy or wheat mm-hmm. crop being grown again and again and again so if my hope is to make people passionate about getting nutrients from the food they eat so they go seek out those natural foods the meats vegetables seafood that tastes amazing because it contains the nutrients they need because it was grown in a, an environment that's nurturing the earth and building back topsoil, not just stripping it away and, and using non-renew- non-renewable resources like there's no tomorrow. It's on my uh, goals list, my lifetime goals list, to own a regenerative farm. So, Okay, let's do it. Yeah, going to be part of the solution. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> it's Good bucket list to have, mate. Oh, totally. It's Yeah, I think it'll be great. Um, 
It also brings up like a, another thought in my mind, which is just a random thought I'm having now. Maybe we're just maybe we're just on perpetual ten thousand year cycles where the population gets mm. to ten billion, and then we we just kill the earth for a while, and then we have a mass death of all these sick, broken people, and we go back to like I don't know a billion or a hundred million or something, and then maybe we're just on this hunt, you know, fifty thousand year cycle that's always happened, and we just don't have the the fossil records to show it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Well, I did. Different civilizations tended to go in cycles when they depleted the the topsoil in that area, unless they lived near the Nile Basin or something where the topsoil kept them washing down. Yeah, we'd just strip our current area bare and then move on to another area. But now we've filled the whole earth, and there's you know we're now mining oil out of Antarctica. You know, yeah. there's nowhere else to go once we. <laughs> No, where do we go next? Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, well, and that, that's one of the sort of regenerative theories or ideas um, about places like where the pyramids are. You know, mm. it's like all of this desert was once farmland and it was just yeah, farmed yeah. to death. Was, uh, from a biblical perspective, it was the Garden of Eden. It was yeah. Babylon, which was incredibly, it was the, the hub of agriculture and now it's a desert. Yeah. And we're just dumping all this non-renewable energy to accelerate that process a hundredfold. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Anyway, got any happy things to talk about? <laughs> I'm getting depressed. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, where can people find you online? Um, yeah, Optimizing Nutrition, um, optimizingnutrition.com. Um, data-driven fasting is a little toy that we've, uh, uh, helps people use their blood sugars to guide when they eat and what they eat. So, yeah, yeah. check it out. And I've got a YouTube channel and a, and a podcast and, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You just got ranked, um, what, number eight of the best nutrition podcast? I, I don't know how I did that. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. What do you mean, sorry? That's amazing. <laughs> no, it's something about social media, but I don't know. Yeah. Don't, don't believe everything you read on the internet. But, uh, no, it's, it's, I had a lot of fun chatting to interesting people like yourself. Well, for all the listeners, Marty is playing himself down right now. Um, his podcast is amazing. You should check it out. I'll put Thanks, a link man. in the show notes below. And for anybody that's enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a friend, share it on social media, tag us. All the links will be down below. Um, and to wrap up, Marty, before, on, your, on the journey of data collection that you've been on for you know almost two decades, what is one piece of health information you wish more people knew about? Oh, wow. Um, nutrient density, which I've banged on about that I hope will be the, the future of food and helping the planet. Amazing. Well, thanks for being here, mate. We'll have to get you on again, assuming that this episode yeah. goes live this time. <laughs> hope you recorded it. <laughs> oh, all right, mate. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Uh, it'll be great to chat again. Thanks, Matty. See you, mate. See ya. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst 
presented that feature on this podcast endeavor to provide accurate information. It cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.